Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm going to get things rolling there. Uh, good to be with you folks this morning. Again, we to covet your prayers. We're praying about going up to, to Washington this week. Make no mistake, we're not going up there to protest. We're not going up there to carry water buckets for Donald Trump. There's an image we saw this past week in Nashville. Eric probably remembers that every Christian in this country would, would do well to see and would do well to open their eyes and admit. You know, we preached the gospel in Nashville, and there was a lot of people down there and a lot of people that we probably agree with politically on some different issues. But people out there were literally shouting down the name of Jesus Christ with Trump 2020. And they were laughing and mocking the live or or the video of a live abortion that we played and projected on a screen out there. Laughing, mocking, and jeering. These are people on the political right that thinks it's a joke that we chop up our children in this country. So the answer is not Republican. I I wrote my representative yesterday, and I would encourage you to call and do the same. He claims to be a conservative. His name is Patrick McHenry. I have voted for him every time he's run since he took over for the retiring Cash Ballinger. And I told him that I expected him to object to this election circus this certification of these fake electors on Tuesday because it's a sham. And if I can't have any faith whatsoever in our election process, then we as Christians have no means to elect Christian people to office. And therefore, we have no reason whatsoever to participate in this circus. So he either objects to it on Tuesday, joining some of the others that promise to do so, Or I'll never vote for him again. I don't care if he's running against the incarnation of Pol Pot or Adolf Hitler two years from now. I'll never vote for him again. Same thing for Tom Tillis. I don't vote for Richard Burr anyway. He's a liar. He's corrupt. But these people need to know that. And I think that's going to be a line in the sand. This has nothing to do with President Trump. It's not about him. But this is a line in the sand. And we need not to forget this, my friends. We must not forget two years from now, four years from now. We must not forget. There is wickedness on both sides of the political aisle in this country. Wickedness beyond imagination. And the answer is not one or the other. Now, if you call yourself a Christian and you vote for a Democrat, then you've got a serious spiritual problem. I would doubt that you even know what the gospel is. Or you're profoundly ignorant and in need of discipleship and accountability. How in the world you would cast a vote for a party who glorifies the chopping up of our children. But voting Republican doesn't make you righteous either. Okay? The day is going to have to come when we're going to have to say, you know what? Because we are Christians, we will not vote for Democrats or Republicans. Maybe because we are Christians, we won't vote at all. Because that's not our hope. And until this wicked country wakes up and realizes that we have a spiritual problem, not a political problem, it's not going to change. So we have lost the jury box in this country as a means of righteousness, as a means of justice. We have lost as a means of representation. We have lost the ballot box as a means of righteousness, 
justice, and representation. But my friends, there's two other boxes that can defend righteousness, justice, liberty, and representation historically. One of them is the soapbox. And so I stood on a soapbox and cried against the sins of this wicked country this past week. And if we go to D.C., that's what we're going to do. And I bet you we're going to get just as much bad reproach from the right as we will from the left. But there's another box, and it's called the cartridge box. And if you don't think I'm willing to open that box and use it when the time comes, then you're mistaken. You're mistaken. When we sang that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that's my favorite hymn, my favorite classic hymn. It was written by Martin Luther. And I thought about his spirit of defiance against wicked tyranny in his day. The spirit in which he wrote that hymn. And we need to remember that. Meeting here today, singing, glorifying God, eating together, doing everything the COVID police tell us we're not allowed to do. That is defiance. That is resistance to tyranny. And it's obedience to God. And so I, I, I dedicate that to Governor Roy Cooper. If you want to do something about it, say when. I'm not going to, I'm so appreciative that this church has met, that we have not closed our doors. I'm so appreciative that we've continued doing what God has called us to do. I know other people have made other decisions. I pray they sought the Lord before they made that decision. I know pastors have died. I know people have died in churches. I read an article about a pastor, a 39-year-old pastor from Alabama that died a few days ago. And the headline was so deceptive, it made you think that this guy, nothing wrong with him, just going about his business, died. And it led you to think that you needed to close your churches and all this because this is what's going to happen to you. Now, I don't understand why Christian people would invite news journalists into their church to give an interview the news media writes to deceive you. It does not write to... Now, there may be truth in the articles, but they use bits of truth to deceive you. So when you, got to, when you watch the actual local news broadcast down there, there was something that was tucked in the middle of it. Number one, he had multiple health conditions that rendered him vulnerable. Secondly... They interviewed one of his church members, and he said that this man was very afraid of COVID. He always wore a mask. He did not want you coming around or coming into the church without a mask. And they stopped meeting outside and had been standing outside and meeting. And what was the result? Now, that's a sad situation. That poor man left a wife and two daughters behind. I don't judge him, but I'm going to look at a situation like that and I'm going to consider it. I'm going to learn from it. Guys, if the result is the same, we shut down, we quit doing what God's telling us to do, we put the muzzle on our face, and it brings the same result as they tell us will come if we don't do these things, then why not go out of this wicked world obeying God? Why not go out of this wicked world being able to say, you know what? They didn't listen, they didn't hear, but we stood amongst them, we did our duty, and now we can enter into the presence of the Lord without shame. That's my question. I don't care if I read about 100,000 pastors dying in this country because of COVID. I don't care if it's 100 million. I'm not going to stop gathering with my brethren to worship Christ. I'm not going to wear a mask, 
and I'm going to go about my life in obedience to the Lord. Guys, there's lawlessness in this country. We watched as police in Nashville were going around trying to hand out masks um, while people in vans were able to pull up and openly sell marijuana out of the back of their van in violation of state law. But the police wouldn't do anything because by the time they went through the processing to make sure it was illegal or enough to be illegal, it wasn't worth their time. So it wasn't worth the police's time to prosecute criminal activity. That's what they said. So guys, the country is engulfed in lawlessness. When there is lawlessness... We don't need to worry about whether we obey what they say or not. We need to live by the law of Christ. We need to live by the law of Christ. And every other single judge's ruling, executive order, mayor's threat, congressman, president, I don't care what it is, we judge it by the law of Christ. And we don't even need to take it seriously because it's all lawlessness. But we have the law of Christ. And we need to stand by that. And we need to do it without fear. We know what's coming. We know what our hope is. And our hope is not in a country making something right politically when it can't even see what's wrong spiritually. So let's don't be deceived in the coming days. Let's don't be those who forget the betrayal, the tyranny, the evil, and the wickedness. Even if it gets a little bit comfortable again, we must not forget these things. And we must continue to act accordingly. Now, I may eat these words. Maybe I'll get sick. Maybe I'll die. I don't know. That could happen to any one of us. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. And I'm just appreciative for the leadership of this church, the elders, the deacons, the people here. We've come together. We've continued to do these things. And I hope in doing it that others will be emboldened to do the same. Again, I know other churches have made other decisions. My job right now or my purpose is not to reach out and judge that I hope they sought the Lord if they didn't seek the Lord they've got a bigger problem but we certainly can look at what's happening around us and learn from it and when you see people that are that are in fear that are wearing the masks that are closing their churches down and all of this with underlying health conditions dying of COVID then we can learn from it we can learn what the truth is we can learn that There are certain things we have no control over. We've got to give that over to the Lord. And it'd be like me refusing to ever go on an airplane because if an airplane crashes, I'm going to die. So I'm never going to go on one. Well, I don't have any control over that. I don't have any more. In fact, there's more of a chance of me dying statistically driving around Hickory in a car than there is on an airplane. But we go about our business. Every day we do things we cannot control beyond the grace of God. And we need to live as though we believe in the Lord and that he knows what is best for us. So I appreciate that. But I was thinking about these things as I was preparing for today's message and just thinking about pastors around the country, churches, those that are dealing with loss. A very sad situation down there in Alabama. I I pray for that man's wife and his daughters. I don't know what the truth is. You can't get at it from a news article. It's very sad. I pray that doesn't happen here. But as I was thinking about these things, God brought to mind a passage about from King David's life. And I left you last week in our discussion of the rapture, the mystery of the rapture of the believer, 
as enfolded in the Old Testament. You know, a mystery of God is something that's enfolded from time immemorial and unfolded for us in the New Testament. So if the rapture, the pre-trib rapture of the church is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, a mystery, we ought to be able to find it in the Old Testament. And so I spent last week talking about types of the rapture of the believer. We looked at Genesis 5, the life and testimony of Enoch. We looked at Genesis 19, the life and testimony of, of Lot and his deliverance from Sodom as a result of Abraham's intercession. We went to Jeremiah 39 and we looked at the lesser known example of Ebed-Melech, the Gentile, who was delivered out of the judgment that came with Babylon, a Gentile, while Jeremiah, the prophet, was preserved through it, a type of Israel. And then we went to Psalm 27 and we looked at David's words there. His confidence. David was a type of a believer who is waiting on the Lord in days of evil, waiting on the Lord in the last days. And David was convinced that God would deliver him out of evil and hide him in his pavilion. So David speaks of God taking his believer out and hiding him in his pavilion while God's judgment falls on his enemies. So David is a type. Today I want to look at some direct prophecy concerning the rapture of the believer, the rapture of the church from the Old Testament. We looked at types in both in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And we're going to do that again today. But I was driven back to a passage in 1 Samuel 17 that I think we would do well to heed today, not just as pastors and leaders who are shepherds of a flock, So the imagery of a shepherd is something God gives us in His Word. It's not something that we foist upon the Word of God. The word pastor in Greek comes from the same word as shepherd. Okay? El pastor in Spanish means shepherd. Okay? Pastorear is a verb that means to shepherd. So there's there's an analogy there that's inseparable from the Word. In the New Testament, we have two offices in the church. We have bishop, elder, pastor. These are interchangeable terms. I'm not going to get into the scriptures that uh, prove that today. That's not my point today. But we've talked about it before. And then we have the office of a deacon. There are no other offices. That's one of the things, one of the Baptist distinctives that we hold dear. Two offices in the church. There's not popes and cardinals and uh, associations and all this type of stuff. Okay, the local church is an autonomous body. And one of the roles of the bishop or the elder is to pastor. So a pastor is a shepherd who is designed to care for, nurture, and protect. That's the one thing that gets forgotten about, his flock. And so David went down in 1 Samuel 17 to the Valley of Elah. Eric and I have stood on top of a mound near there where we could look down and see where this took place where Israel was drawn up in battle against the Philistines. And you know the story of Goliath. David came down and his brothers were like, what are you up to down here? You've got something, some mischief. And they didn't like the fact that he was asking questions. You know, people people that don't want the truth don't like it when you ask questions. But anyway, David heard about this Goliath coming down and mocking the God of Israel and mocking his army. And so David said, you know, let me go out to him. I'm not afraid of him. 
And they thought he was crazy. Well, they brought him before Saul, and Saul's just like, uh, how are you going to go? You, you can't go against this man. You're just a youth. You're just a youth, and he's been trained from his youth to be a man of war. And this is what David said in verse 34. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said, David, unto David go, and the Lord be with you. David was a shepherd. And what he reflects here is a fearlessness. He was a shepherd that didn't just protect the flock, but he protected one of the flock that was taken by a lion or a bear. He went out to meet that bear and rescued even an individual member of that flock. Just like Jesus talked about, one having a hundred sheep, leaving the 99 to rescue the one that had fallen into a pit. That was David the shepherd. Now, if we're shepherds of God's flock, we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to follow this example? But there's a lot of pastors today in America that aren't. There are some who fear COVID. I don't think they should. I think they should get some more information before reacting. I think it's a dangerous thing to ever believe what's being fed to you by the news media. They lie to us about so much stuff. There are things that you've been lied to about in your life since the first day you walked into a school. But there are things you can't handle. So I'm not going to talk about it from the pulpit. There are things that you've been lied to about by the media your entire life, things I've been lied to about, that the truth can easily be seen, just like Romans 1 says. But we've been lied to so much, we can't even handle that. And there are things or topics that if I were to talk about from this pulpit, some of you would never listen to me again. But that's just the way it is. So I wouldn't be one to just believe that. But there are those whose fear of COVID isn't because they fear for their flock. It's the opposite of David here. It's because they fear for themselves. Make no mistake, there's plenty of that out there. There is no room for that in the body of Christ. And there's no room for that amongst this leadership. And if we read and look at the examples that we're talking about here, how can we justify living like that? We can't. This same David who was convinced God would deliver him was one who believed and lived as if what he said was true. David was convinced God would deliver him And he had every right to write that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 27 because he had lived it as a shepherd that cared for his father's flock. That's what gave him authority by the Holy Spirit. He didn't just say it, he lived it. We need to be believers that don't just talk about God delivering us and trusting the Lord, but we're living it before the world and before our fellow believers, hopefully to encourage and strengthen them. 
But I want to go to another passage in Psalms today. Now, if you remember, we've been looking at Proverbs 11, just a few verses there. Now, I've kind of not followed them exactly in order to make my point and draw, draw the comparison to the, to the birth narrative of Christ. But let's just go there for a moment, Proverbs 11. And I springboarded off of verse 11 for this teaching. This goes back several weeks. Let's look at verse 7. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. Guys, but we're of Christ. We're of God in Christ. When we die, our expectation doesn't die with us like it does for the wicked. And we looked at how Simeon reflected that. A man who knew his expectation wouldn't die with him there in the Christmas story. The righteous, verse 8, is delivered out of trouble. And the wicked cometh in his stead. God delivers the righteous. And there's payday someday for the wicked. And that happens when righteous people interpose between tyranny and its victims. And we saw that with the wise men. They interposed between Herod's command and Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And they did not go back to Herod. They went home another way. They defied an executive order. Verse 9. A hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge shall the just be delivered. Through knowledge of God's word, we can be delivered from what we're told to fear. And we saw this lived out in Mary. Mary was great with child. The coming of Jesus was inevitable. It could have been at any day, and yet she got on that donkey and and went with her husband and made the 90-mile trip to Bethlehem. We talked about how Christ's coming today is imminent for his church, just like his birth was imminent in those days that Mary went to Bethlehem. Verse 10, when it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is shouting. That's a fact. When it goes well with the righteous, the city benefits, and when the wicked perish, There is shouting. It was well for Jerusalem when the shepherds went out and rejoiced over what they had seen. It was terrible for Bethlehem when Herod came and killed all those young babies. Verse 11. I've kind of gotten my analogies with the, 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 the birth narrative mixed up. Uh, when the righteous is delivered out of trouble, we looked at Joseph, who d- was used of God to deliver his family. Through knowledge, the just will be delivered. Mary's knowledge of God's word, her trust in it, resulted in her deliverance, even though the birth was imminent. When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoices... When the wicked perish, they're shouting. In order for this to happen, we must interpose between tyranny. And that was the analogy I drew to the wise men. Like I said, we took these verses out of order, but they all go together. And then verse 11, by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. The blessing of the upright exalts a city, 
What greater blessing is there to do the, than to do what the shepherds did, to go out and proclaim the word of God? Washington is more blessed by the preaching of God's word on the street than it is by protesting on the street. And we as Christians ought to understand that. The shepherds went out and told the people of Jerusalem and the area around Bethlehem, they told them what they had seen. And the people rejoiced. Anna did the same thing to all those who were looking for redemption there in Jerusalem. We ought to be those that bless the cities and towns and countries in which we live in through the preaching of the word, whether the governor declares or not, by living the very things we claim to believe. And so we use these verses as springboards to highlight some unsung details and heroes in the Christmas or the birth narrative of Christ. And we've talked about the coming of Christ. The Old Testament never talks about Christ's first coming without it juxtaposed with His second coming. They're one and the same. One of them guaranteed the other. What happened first guaranteed what would happen way off in the future second. It's undeniable that we as Christians are to be ready for our Lord's coming at any moment. It's been that way since the dawn of the church. However... There are things that must happen before Christ returns to set up a kingdom. Christ's coming is imminent for the believer, and yet there are things that must happen first with regard to Israel in the last days. Therefore, when Christ tells us to be ready at any moment, he's talking about something other than Revelation 19. And we believe in this church body. The scriptures teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Not in just one or two passages, We looked at it way back when we transitioned into Revelation chapter 4, okay? And we've talked about it in Corinthians and Thessalonians, working through those books. And again, we're looking at the Old Testament. So I want to look at some direct prophecy today. Here I go rambling with a long introduction again. I'm I'm sorry. But I want to look at some direct prophecy in the law, the writing, or the prophets and the Psalms. And we'll do our best. We'll hope. I know we're going to partake of the Lord's table today, so I want to remember that. And if we don't finish, we don't finish. This is good stuff. Before we get into a passage in Psalms that I think echoes these things, I need to give you a little background. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. When we talk about the future tribulation, the period of tribulation, the Bible teaches that it is... For two purposes, to wake up the nation of Israel so that she will finally recognize her Messiah and call for him and he will rescue her, and to judge the Gentile nations. This is affirmed not only in Daniel, but in Revelation, in Jesus' Olivet Discourses with the people in the city and privately with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Olives is confirmed in the prophet Jeremiah, Isaiah. But Jeremiah gives us another name for the tribulation. It's also called Daniel's 70th week. Jesus refers to the latter half of it as the great tribulation when things get particularly bad after Antichrist betrays Israel. But Jeremiah's got another name for it. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And in Jeremiah, we see chapter 30, a picture of what God is doing now. These things are taking place now. Verse chapter 30 Verses 1 through 3, I'm not going to read all this now. You can go back and do that. But in the first three verses, 
we see God says one day he is going to regather not just Judah, but Judah and Israel back into the land in a state of unbelief. See, there's people out there that can't handle the fact that Tel Aviv is a wicked city, that it's one of the homosexual capitals of the world. You know, they learned all that stuff from us. Israel looks way too much at us to decide how to do things in their country, and that's foolishness. But people are surprised by, well, you know, these aren't God's people. They don't believe there's this and that. Well, that's exactly what God said would happen. They would come back in a state of unbelief. Not just Judah that came back after the Babylonian captivity, but Israel and Judah. So that's what we're seeing today. There would be a regathering into the land. I will cause them to return to the land that I gave their fathers and they shall possess it. Verse 4, these are the words concerning Israel and Judah. And then what's the next thing that happens? Verses 4 through 8. After a regathering in unbelief, there is a great period of trembling and judgment in the land. So judgment comes to these unbelieving Jews who have been regathered. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great, that none is like it, even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. This is the tribulation, a time of Jacob's trouble. And in verse 9, we see that this time of Jacob's trouble results in a spiritual awakening, awakening for Israel. They will serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up to them. So we have regathering in unbelief. We have tribulation, time of Jacob's trouble. We have spiritual awakening. We're in that period of regathering right now. That's what's happening right now. It's begun with the modern state of Israel in 1948. Hosea confirms this, that Israel would be judged and that Israel would go through trial and tribulation until... And that Messiah would not come to deliver them until they acknowledge their great sin of unbelief. So Messiah can't come to deliver Israel until they acknowledge their sin, which they will do, it's told here, toward the end of that tribulation period. That's things that must happen for Christ to return and set up a kingdom. But not, none of that has to happen before God does what David said he would do take his faithful out and hide them in his pavilion. So we see in Jeremiah very clearly that the purpose of the tribulation is to wake up Israel. Verse 11, God says, I'm going to make a full end of all the nations where I've scattered you. That includes the United States. The ultimate future of the United States is a full end. God's judgment. There's no way around it. Yet I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. The purpose of the tribulation with regards to Israel is to correct her and to punish her so she will wake up. And then when you get down to verse 24, we have an interesting statement at the very end that in the latter days you will consider it. In other words, you'll more fully be able to understand these things, Israel, this prophecy in the latter years. And friends, what this tells us is that the scriptures, when we study them, we don't need to always be looking at them through 
a zoom lens. There's a place to zoom out. We need that wide-angle lens. And as more time goes by from the utterance of these prophecies, and as we close in on the last days, that wide angle becomes even more clear. We are in a better position to understand a lot of these prophecies because we have seen years go by and elements of them be fulfilled in ways that our predecessors have not. And so we, our landscape lens becomes sharper and, and is able to pull in a wider angle. We need to zoom out from time to time with the Scriptures and let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures to get a better understanding. But we're told here that the latter days, the same day, the same words that are used in Ezekiel 37, 38, latter years are a time when we will more easily be able to consider this. And we can. So we see that one of the purposes of the tribulation is to wake up Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It also results in the judgment upon a Gentile nation. So with that in mind, let's go to the Psalms. And the Psalms are a great place to train yourself to zoom out and set your eyes in landscape mode when you study the scriptures. We're all too often guilty of of a zoom lens where we cherry pick one verse and we forget about its context, its near and its far context. And then we we fail to interpret it in light of other clear truth. We've got to zoom ourselves and, and let the whole testimony of scripture be our guide with difficult passages. But the Psalms are a great place to train yourself to do that. Okay, We often read the psalms as independent units. And they are. They're independent psalms. But they're put there, and they're put there in a specific order for a reason. For example, you read Psalm 1 two ways. Blessed is the man that walks in the way of righteous versus the wicked. Okay, We read Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm. Christ coming to set up his kingdom. Then we get to Psalm 3 when David fled from Absalom. And he talks about trusting the Lord, how God will give him peace. And instead of fearing, he was able to lay down and sleep. And we think, okay, these are great little topics. But think about it when we zoom out. Psalm 1 tells us there's two ways in this world. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 defines for us the way of the righteous. It defines it very clearly. It's the Messiah, period. And then Psalm 3 shows us what trusting in the Messiah, walking the way of the righteous, actually looks like in real life. How it is practically applied by someone living in difficult times. So that's what a wide angle will get you. It all goes together. Psalm 14 through 16. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They've all gone aside. They're all sinful. The problem of man. He's sinful and cannot approach unto God. Psalm 15 defines for us a righteous man. The qualities of a righteous man. One of them is he doesn't give his word and then not do it. Even if it hurts him, he keeps his word. Another quality of a righteous man is that in his eyes, a wicked man is contemned. The word contemned is like the opposite of appreciated. So a righteous man actually looks at wicked politicians and wicked men and contemns them with his eyes. 
When you look at those qualities of a righteous man in Psalm 15, there's a glaring conclusion you come to. We need a Messiah because none of us measure up. Psalm 14, all are sinful. Psalm 15, we need a, a, a Messiah because God's standard, we don't measure up to it. And then Psalm 16 tells us how to identify the Messiah. We need a Messiah. Here's how you identify him. He's, God raises him from the dead. So you get that truth that builds upon itself. And the Psalms are a great way to learn how to read the Scriptures with a wide angle from time to time. So those are some examples. I could go into more, but we're going to see it today. Psalm 49, we're not going to read it. Psalm 49 makes it very clear. Payday is coming for the wicked. Payday is coming for all nations. There shouldn't be any doubt in your mind over that when you read the Scriptures. But then we get to Psalm 50, and Psalm 50 emphasizes another purpose for that payday with regard to Israel. So here we see the same truths from Jeremiah 30 laid out in Psalm 50. It echoes the purpose of the time of God's wrath for Israel. So what we see here is a prophecy looking forward to Israel in the tribulation. Notice some verses here. Psalm 50, the mighty God. In Hebrew, this is El Elohim Yehovah. Or the Tetragrammaton. They say Hashem. They don't want to say it. We don't really know 100% sure. The Masoretes put vowel points, and that's where we get Jehovah from. But what we hear, have here is El, a name for God. That's what we translate mighty. Elohim, God, even the Lord, Jehovah. So we have three names of God right there. We have the Godhead, the triune Godhead. Making declaration, Father, Son, and Spirit. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. This is the heavenly Zion, God hath shined. Our God, verse 3, shall come. And shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him. And it shall be very tempestuous round about him. This is the exact same picture that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 and 8. He calls it the day of Christ. I preached this the other day on the streets. It's a day when Christ Jesus comes in flaming fire to take vengeance on the wicked and those that have not obeyed God. That is what is described here. God coming in flaming fire. And when he does this, or at that time, verse 4, he will do two things. He will call to the heavens from above. So he will call something to the heavens from above those heavens, which is above the firmament where God's throne is. And he's going to call to the earth for the purpose that he may judge his people. So at that time, he's going to call something to the heavens from above, and he's also going to call the, to the earth for the purpose of judging his people, Israel. 
I'm going to skip verse 5 for now, but look at verse 6. And what's going to happen in that day? The heavens will declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. What did Jesus say would take place in those days? There would be signs in the heavens. The sun would go dark. The moon would be as blood. Jesus even said that the stars will fall to the earth. It tells us this in Revelation. It tells us this in Isaiah, that the stars will fall to the earth. Now, when I read that and I think about what we're told about outer space and the stars and the earth is just some random spinning ball going around a random star in some random corner of the universe, I ask myself, how is that even possible? You know, if one star, one star couldn't fall to the earth if what they tell us is true. But Jesus is telling us something different. I'm going to trust Jesus. Doesn't mean I understand it. But we can't believe everything we've been told, especially stuff that we can't see and we can't observe and test with our own ability. Just because somebody writes it in a book or puts a fake picture up there that's actually an artist's drawing and not a photograph doesn't make it true. But these are the days when there will be signs in the heavens. This all agrees with what Jesus said. Verses 7 and 8. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. So God says here that during this time he is going to testify against and reprove Israel. He's not going to reprove them because of the long period of time where there was no temple from the time that Jesus, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, until the time they build another temple that's going to happen. God's not going to reprove them for that. They think that's a great, terrible thing that they've got to remedy. And so they're going to build themselves a temple. Not one that God has commanded. God only commanded Solomon's temple, the second temple, and the building of the millennial temple. He did not command a temple to be built in the tribulation, but it will happen. And God says, I'm not going to reprove you for the fact that you were without a temple all these years. But this is what I am going to do. Verse 9, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand heroes. But I'm not going to acknowledge or accept this house that you build during this time of judgment. God will not acknowledge or accept the tribulation temple. I'm not going to accept it. I don't want any bullock. I own all the animals in all the forests and on all the hills. I'm not going to acknowledge it. That's the temple we see in Revelation 11 where God sends his two witnesses to cry against the false religion and the deception of Antichrist that God's people, the Jews, are believing. And then you get down to verse 15 and you see Israel, who is not, God does not acknowledge their temple. You see God correcting them and reproving them. And then they will call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Exactly what Hosea 5 says will happen. The Messiah will return when they call on him. So we have Israel exhorted to call on the Lord in the tribulation. And then when you read the rest of the psalm, but unto the wicked, God has something else to say. Unto the Gentile nations during this time, the other nations, God has something else to say. In other words, I am not like you. I don't judge by the eyes. I know what's in your heart. And I'm going to tear you in pieces, those of you that forget God. And you'd do well to consider it now 
before that day comes. So that's the rest of the psalm. And then when we get to the end of it, verse 23 gives us hope. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him who ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Not to the Israel that builds their own temple and offers up their own sacrifices, having rejected the sacrifice of Messiah. That's not the one to whom God will show the salvation of God. It's the one who orders his conversation aright. So we have Psalm 49, payday coming for all. Psalm 50, there's an element of that that involves God judging and waking up his people Israel. And then Israel is told it's the ones that order their conversation aright that I will save. Not those who perpetuate false religion. Now go to verse 51. What is it, or chapter 51, or Psalm 51. What does it mean, or what does it look like to order our conversation aright before God? The answer is right there in Psalm 51. Repentance, humility, faith and trust in God's provision. Salvation. So it's amazing. Those psalms go together, but right here in the heart of it, we have this predictive psalm concerning Israel's judgment in a time of tribulation. The tribulation, it's what Paul references in chapter, or verse 3 is referenced over there in 1 Thessalonians 1. Now I skipped over verse 5 because it's a very interesting passage sandwiched in this context. Verse 5, in the midst of this, we're told in verse 4 God's going to do two things. One of them is he's going to call to the earth and judge his people. That's what we see him doing, verses 6 and onward. But in the first part of verse 4, before that, he's going to call to the heavens from above. From his throne above the heavens, he's going to call something or someone to the heavens. Verse 5 tells us what that is. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. By real sacrifice, not by the sacrifices of that temple he reproves Israel for in the following verses. So what we see is God, before he reproves Israel during tribulation, calling his saints to the heavens above, gathering his saints, those who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. Have you made a covenant with God by sacrifice? I have. My covenant with God is by the sacrifice of the Messiah on the cross and His resurrection. My covenant with Him is not by religion. It's not by my church attendance. It's not by observing Jewish religious traditions and somehow feeling more spiritual. It is by sacrifice, the sacrifice of Messiah. So those who have made a covenant with God by sacrifice, an efficacious sacrifice, not the stuff they're bringing to the temple, God's going to call from above the heavens them to the heavens and gather them. Now what's very interesting is the verb to gather is a Hebrew verb that means to fetch or to gather in like a harvest, like you would go out in the field and gather in the fruit. It's the exact same Hebrew verb that appears in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 in the Hebrew New Testament when when Jesus says two will be in the field, one will be taken. That means gathered, 
Same verb in the Hebrew New Testament that we give out to the Israelis. The other left. We've talked about that passage referencing the rapture of the believer. Well, we see it right here in the Old Testament. In the time of judgment, before God calls to the earth to judge His people Israel, exactly what Jeremiah 30 says is going to happen, before that time of Jacob's trouble, God calls to the heavens His saints, gathers them unto Him who have made, who have, who have, uh, made a covenant with Him by sacrifice. My friends, in the context of these scriptures, the greater context of these psalms, we know where we are in God's plan and program, and we see a fetching out of the saints ahead of that judgment. There's a seed of the rapture of God's people before that judgment falls. Let's turn to Song of Solomon. We're going to stay in the Psalms or the writings, that part of the Hebrew Bible. Song of Solomon is a beautiful poem, a song of songs, they call it. Shir Hashirim in Hebrew, Song of Songs. Young Solomon wrote about his love for his, or his, his relationship with his first love. It's a beautiful picture of what marriage should, can and should be. But it's Jesus who draws the analogy with marriage when it comes to his relationship with the church. It's Jesus that does that, not me, not you. John 14's marriage imagery. Paul talks about us being a spouse to Christ. So if this is a picture of marriage, righteous marriage and righteous relationship between man and wife, then it is also by default a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride. And we need to remember that when we read it. That's not to take away from the literal testimony coming from Solomon's life. But again, Solomon's relationship with the Shulamite woman is a type of Christ's relationship with his church, the way Old Testament prophecy works. Let's look at chapter 2. It's very interesting. The first two verses, the bridegroom is speaking. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. That's the bridegroom talking. Now it switches to the bride. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In the first two verses, the bride who is identified as the Rose of Sharon, that's a name that's been used for Christ, talks about how his love, his bride, is a delicate lily, a delicate flower that is living amongst thorns, that is encroached upon with thorns. Then the bride sees her bridegroom as a shadow under which she can rest, even amidst thorns. Verse 4, He, my bridegroom, brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. What we see in verses 4 through 6 is the bridegroom coming to fetch his bride, who is a lily among thorns, and bring her to his banqueting house, where she is able to rest. 
and where she is with her bridegroom. That's what we see. Verse 7, now the bride addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. I charge you, all you daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose or the mountain goats and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. So the fetching of the bride has been described, what the bride is waiting for. And then the bride tells the daughters of Jerusalem, don't bother him. He will come for me when he is ready. So in other words, she's thinking about what's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. And she tells her, the daughters of Jerusalem, don't bother him. Don't awake him. He will come for me when he is ready. And then when we get to verses 8 through 14, we see what that fetching of the bride actually looks like. The bride, he will come when he pleases. Don't, don't, don't mess with him. And then suddenly, the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart, a deer or an antelope. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Come away with me. For lo, the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds is come. And the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. That's the turtle dove. The, fir, the fig tree putteth forth her green figs. And the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O oh, my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. So, we have the bridegroom that sees his bride as a delicate flower among thorns. We have the bride who longs for him to come and get her and take her to her banqueting house. We have the daughters of Jerusalem that are told, don't Mess with my love, he will come when he is ready. And then we see what that fetching of the bride looks like from verses 8 through 14. The bridegroom comes, he stands outside the bride's house, looking through the lattice outside the window and says to her, Get up, let's go, come away with me, because her winter is past. And when, and when the bride's winter is past, what is happening on the trees. Verse 13. The fig tree is shooting forth her green leaves and her fruit. When the fig tree shoots forth her green leaves and her fruit, her green figs, when that happens, it's time for the bridegroom to fetch his bride. And then what does he do with her? Verse 14. He hides her in the clefts of the rock in a secret place of his stairs. So that's a chapter in this love song that describes a very important part of the Jewish wedding, the fetching of the bride. And we've talked about that. Jesus used that analogy in John 14 to talk about going away to prepare for his people, a place in his father's house, and then he would come again and receive his church to himself. Just like a bridegroom receives his, his bride and takes her away. 
So we see this here. Now, what I find very interesting is when Jesus speaks and Jesus preaches, he is not pulling images and analogies out of thin air. He is always alluding to the scriptures as he preaches to a people who God had ordained to give the scriptures to the world who should have known them, particularly the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So Jesus is always alluding back to the Old Testament and he does it for a reason because he's showing that he is the one who is prophesied. If you remember in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, this is all where Jesus is talking about his coming. He's telling his disciples to be ready. In Matthew uh, 24, he immediately goes into the one is taken, the other left, the rapture. But Jesus tells us a sign in nature. And he makes reference to a sign that is used here. In Matthew 24, 32, and I'll just go there quickly. I'm sorry if you're bored. I'm fascinated by these things. Matthew 24, 32, Jesus says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. Now where do you think Jesus is getting this from? Is he just randomly bringing this up? Because the fig tree is in the Old Testament as a sign. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and he putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near. Know that what is near? Well, what was near when the fig tree shot forth green leaves in Song of Solomon 2? The fetching of the bride. Even at the doors. And then he goes on to talk about two in the field. One is taken, the other is left. So Jesus is alluding to the sign of the fig tree that is very clearly declared here in Song of Solomon 2. Now, like I said, the fig tree is used as a parable in the Old Testament. If you recall back in Revelation 6, John refers to a fig tree when he talks about the sixth seal judgment the opening of the sixth seal. It would be as when a fig tree cast its figs to the ground. At the end of the season, the figs fall off. I know we got to deal with these back home with our fig bushes when we do the last of the mowing and the weed eating. I don't like it when that stuff, or the walnuts fall on the ground. I make the kids go out there and throw them out in the woods. But there's a time when the fig tree casts its figs and when John, and when that is described in Revelation 6, it's making direct reference back to Isaiah 34 where the exact same six-seal judgment is declared and it's declared to be as when a fig tree cast forth its figs. So in Revelation, we have an allusion back to an imagery already used in the Old Testament when a fig tree throws its fruit to the ground when its season is over. We have the fig tree shooting forth its leaves. Jesus makes that analogy in Matthew 24. And we have it alluding back to another point in a fig tree's life when it shoots forth its green leaves and its green figs. That is a time when the bridegroom comes to fetch his bride. So here we have a glorious picture of the rapture of the bride 
when her winter is past, when the fig tree is shooting forth green, she is fetched out. Now the fig tree produces figs and eventually the figs will cast to the ground. The figs cast to the ground during great judgment, Isaiah 34, Revelation 6. So the bride is called out when the fig tree is putting forth its green leaves in the spring or, or at the beginning of its cycle. The judgment happens and the figs are being cast to the ground. So we have a glorious picture of the mystery of the rapture of the church in Song of Solomon chapter 2. And it's Jesus that alludes to it, not me. This is not me searching and trying to find something to fit my theology. It's Jesus that makes an allusion to the fig tree that's declared right here. It's Jesus that does it. Now verse 15 is interesting in this chapter. The bride says, when we go, we got to take something with us. Take us or take with us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine and I am his. As she is taken and hidden, it says we need to take these foxes. We need to take these little foxes that are, that are uh, spoiling the vines. Season, take them with us for they are messing up the grapes. They're messing them up. Here I see what is alluded to in Revelation 3, Hebrews 12, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. 32. The rapture or the fetching of the bride is the blessed hope of the believer. But make no mistake, there's an element in which it is the sin unto death of a church that is lukewarm and rendered ineffective. Jesus tells that church, whom I love, I chasten. So the lukewarm believers are the ones he loves and he chastens. But Hebrews tells us that unconverted false converts are not chastened because they're bastards and not children. If you're chastened of the Lord, you're one of his sons. So Jesus tells Laodicea, whom I love, I chasten, you need to repent. The Laodicean church is the last church of the church age. Rights of the people, what I want. I got to protect myself from COVID. I'm not going to church. Laodicea. So there's an element in which the redemption of the believer, because of the sacrifice Christ made, is also the judgment upon the church. If we would judge ourselves, the church, Paul said, we would not be judged. But when we are judged as the church, it is so we will not be condemned with the world. And he said that warning about taking the Lord's Supper unworthy. So we even see that element there. As you go on through verses 16 and 17, what does the bride do? She comes back to earth. She pleads for her groom to come get her while it is still night. My beloved is mine. I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bethel. So we have the bride that is sitting here pondering upon what she is waiting for. She's waiting for it. She tells her sisters, the daughters of Jerusalem, don't, he will come in his own time, then goes into what it looks like, and then she's pleading, come, come like that row on the mountains, come and get me. A wonderful picture of where we should be today. Come and get us, Lord. Jesus references this passage when talking to his disciples and telling them to be ready it is Jesus who makes this analogy. It's Jesus who compares his coming to the Jewish wedding, John 14. 
This is the fetching of the bride. And that's exactly what the rapture of the believer prior to the judgment is. So we have another direct prophetic reference. The book of Isaiah is an incredible prophetic work, 66 chapters. In some way, it is a microcosm of the entire Bible. And the flow of Isaiah kind of flows the testimony of the whole Bible. It's amazing. Isaiah was discovered in the Dead Sea Caves, uh, an Isaiah scroll, a complete Isaiah scroll, the entire prophet's work that dates from well before Christ. And it matches exactly what we have today in the Hebrew text. God preserves his word. But when we read Isaiah, we have to look at the context. We have to zoom out to fully understand and appreciate these prophecies that are often echoed in the New Testament. In Isaiah, chapters 11 and 12, we have referenced these. We have described for us the millennium under the promised Messiah. We see the millennium when the lion lays down with the lamb in the Lord's mountain. And then we see in chapter 12 the song of Israel that has finally been reconciled and restored to her God. So 11 and 12 sets the time frame for a whole lot of chapters that follow. Now chapters 13 through 23 are interesting because they highlight judgments against Gentile nations, but particular Gentile nations. Gentile nations whose relationship with Israel or whose dealings with Israel in the last days will be very significant to God bringing about her restoration. That's why we see judgments against Babylon in chapters 13 and 14. It can't only be talking about the Babylon of Isaiah's day, which was barely a blip on a map. Remember in Isaiah's day, Babylon sent ambassadors to Hezekiah and Hezekiah showed them all the things in the temple and these were just, it wasn't a very significant nation and Isaiah said, look, these same Babylonians are going to come take this temple away one day. And Hezekiah said, well, oh well, at least it won't happen while I'm alive. So he didn't take it seriously. So this, but we know it's not talking about that because when you look through chapters 13 and 14, you see direct references to the last days, to the tribulation. The millennium, when the whole earth is at rest. When the, the Assyrian or the Antichrist is broken in the land at a time when God judges all nations and accomplishes His purpose. Chapter 14, verse 26. This is the time when God judges all nations. Chapters 15 and 16, we, hear, we see Moab, judgment against Moab. Moab is going to be Israel's hiding place against the wrath of the Antichrist. Chapter 16, verse 4. So this is direct reference to Israel in the last days. Moab is also part of the land grant given to Abraham in Genesis 15 that Israel has never possessed. So it is greater Israel. Chapter 17, Damascus, that's another part of that land grant. Damascus, Syria, it belongs to Israel according to God's promise to Abraham. In chapter 18, we have judgment declared upon a strange nation. In fact, a nation that didn't exist at that time. So it's not named. It's not named. You go to chapter 19, judgment upon Israel, Egypt, again, part of greater Israel, part of that land grant all the way to the Nile from the Nile to the Euphrates belongs to Israel as God gave it to Abraham. She's never possessed it. So we have nations related to the land grant that God gave to Israel. 
judgments pronounced against them. That's what all these nations have in common. All of them, except chapter 18, existed at that day and are named. 18 doesn't give a name to the nation. Chapters 20 through 23, we have what I call near-horizon prophecy, stuff that's going to happen in the not-too-distant future that will prove or be a sign that all these long-term prophecies will come true, literally. Okay? Judgments against Assyria, Elam, Arabia, Tyre. Tyre, which was the, the marked or the chief merchant of the nations. The one, kind of like China today, the mart of the nations, everything comes from China. Tyre was the mart of the ancient times, and what God would do to her would be proof that one day he'll overthrow the whole world system. So we see the fall of the ancient earth's Wall Street in chapter 23. All this is near horizon stuff. It would point to the far horizon, the ultimate purpose. What he did to Tyre would be to stain the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. It, what he did to Tyre is an example to all of us, just like Sodom. We all learn from it. And then we, in chapters 24, we go back to the last days. So we have last days. Then we have near horizon prophecy that is going to prove or be a sign that what follows in the last days will certainly come true. So in chapters 24 through 27, we're talking about the whole earth. Chapter 24 is toward the end of the tribulation. It is the time of the bold judgments. It mirrors the bold judgments that John talks about. It's not the days of Noah where there's pseudo-security, people are giving in marriage, marrying, eating and drinking, living their lives when the Son of Man comes for His people. It's not those days. Those days are when those very things are not happening. Isaiah 24, we talked about it. It's also a time of Gentile gleaning. Exactly what is the gleanings, the tribulation saints, exactly what Revelation 7 talks about. So we have agreement here. Chapter 25, we see the second coming the coming of Messiah to deliver Israel. And then we get into chapter 26, which is the praise of Israel for what God has done in this time and how his judgments ultimately teach them righteousness and bring them to that spiritual awakening that we see in Jeremiah 30. So chapter 26 I want to look at here. I might save chapter 18 to next week because it's very, very interesting. But let's look at 26. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but let's look at verses 9 uh, through 11. Particularly, we're going to focus on verses 19 through 21 as far as prophetic reference to the rapture. These verses have been misused since COVID started. But we want to set the context. Verses 9 through 11. With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Guys, when God judges the world, those that are open or have ears to hear will learn righteousness. And because of that, we should be praying for God's judgment. Even on this nation. Because there will be those that learn righteousness. But verse 10, but let favor be showed to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, will he still deal unjustly or will he deal unjustly? 
and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. In fact, there are wicked out there. It doesn't matter what God does. They will not acknowledge it. Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see. But they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. Those verses are worth reading when we look at our country today. There are those that learn righteousness from what God is doing and there are those that will never learn. Sadly, some that will never learn are in the churches. But they're going to see it and the fire of the Lord is going to devour them. So judgment brings good things. It teaches people righteousness and it purges the land of the wicked. Now as we proceed down in verses 15 through 18, we actually see Israel in the tribulation. It's at a time when God has increased the nation. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. In another place it says thou hast increased the nation, but not its joy. God has increased Israel at this time. We've seen that. They've been gathered from all the earth. But not the joy. Always problems. But God, it's, this is the time when God has increased the nation. O God, Lord, thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou had removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble they have visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. This is Israel in the, in the tribulation. It's the birth pang analogy, the exact same analogy that Jeremiah uses to describe the time of Jacob's trouble. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have brought forth wind, we've not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So we see Israel in the time of tribulation, verses 15 through 18. The same imagery Jeremiah uses. And then verses 19 through 20 tell us what gets this period rolling, what jump starts it. What is it that jumpstarts it? Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out their dead. The dew of herbs in the early time when the fig puts forth its green leaf. God says, my dead are going to rise. They're going to get up out of the ground. So we have a resurrection they're going to awake and the earth is going to cast out its dead. When does that happen? There was a type of that. There was a near horizon fulfillment when Christ rose from the dead. It said some of God's people from the Old Testament, the saints, got up out of the graves. Their bodies came out and were seen walking around the city. That happened once, a shadow fulfillment. The first fruits, Christ and his resurrection. But the earth's going to cast out her dead like Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4, that, that, that mystery. The earth cast out her dead. Not only does she cast out her dead, but look at verse 20. Come, my people, these are the ones that aren't dead, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. So in other words, what we see before the indignation comes, what Israel finds itself in, the earth's going to spit out the dead and there's a call 
for God's people to come and hide themselves until that indignation be overpassed. Now, what's interesting is the verb come here in chapter, in verse 20, is the exact same command that the bridegroom gives his bride in Song of Solomon 2. Come, come away. It's the same Hebrew verb. It means to come away. Same thing that the bridegroom tells his bride, God tells his people, come and hide yourselves until the indignation be passed. And why are they to hide themselves? Verse 21, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall, be, shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So we see Israel that's been increased in the midst of the tribulation. And what's going to get that rolling is the earth cast out its dead. The, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to be hidden by the Lord until the indignation is overpassed. And once we're hidden, what does God do? He comes out of his place to punish the earth. We have not been appointed to wrath. The tribulation is to punish the earth. Guys, our sins were punished on Jesus Christ. If God is consistent, if God follows his protocol, which he's always done, he has to deliver us before that time comes. Because we've been delivered, we've already been punished. But here we have it right here in Isaiah. The rapture. The dead in Christ and those which are alive and remain. It's funny. They will live with my dead body shall they arise. Who's talking here? God. God's talking about his dead body? Together with my dead body? What's that all about? Did God have a dead body? Well, Jesus became a man and he did have a dead body because he was buried and he rose from the grave. And when the earth spits out its dead and the saints are told to come, what's going to happen? With his dead body, they're going to be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Exactly what we're told in the New Testament. That we will be like him. That we will be, our new body will be fashioned like his glorious body. All of these things Paul talks about were not new. Their seeds are right here in the Old Testament. Why should the people be told to come with their bridegroom to hide? Because it's a time when God will punish the world. Judge the world for its wickedness. And what happens? You know, there's a certain element of destruction that will immediately follow the rapture of the believer. Just imagine I mean, there are those of us that are going to be doing stuff at the time the dead in Christ rise and in the moment in the twinkling of an eye we are caught up to the Lord. There are people going to be doing stuff. What if you're driving a vehicle and God just takes you? Well, what's going to happen? That vehicle's going to wreck. What if you're a believer and you're flying a plane? Uh-oh. So there's going to be great destruction that immediately follows. And out of that chaos and lawlessness it will be very, very easy for a man to arise and take control. Very quickly. In fact, that's what Paul says. Paul says that he can't arise until a what and a he are taken out of the way. The what is the church, the he is the Holy Spirit, the restrainer that indwells them. And once that's gone, there's a vacuum 
You go on to chapter 27, we see the judgment of Israel's ultimate enemy, Satan the Leviathan. And we also see the modern state of Israel's pseudo-prosperity, its rise and its fall to purge her so that she may be restored in the end. So these verses aren't ripped out of a context, folks. They are, they're not talking about canceling church because of COVID. That is an abominable resting of Scripture to people's own destruction. Those that have used this. This is in the context of God delivering His people out of the judgment that is to come. It's what it is. Now, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper today. There's one other passage I would like to look at. And I would like to look at it in more detail. So I'm going to put that off, if that's okay, with the elders uh, till next week. Um, I want to look at Isaiah 18. Because there's a reference to a nation there that is not named. And when God judges that nation, it's going to happen at a time when he also receives a great present from that nation. I think it's very interesting. It'll even be more interesting after what transpires this week in Washington, D.C. So we'll put that off. But... Meditate on Isaiah 18 this next uh, week or so because here we have another prophetic reference to the rapture of the believer. And that rapture is going to involve people from a, more people from a specific nation than from other nations at that time. And that would naturally be true based on where most Christians live in the world today. But what should we do with these mysteries? You know, those of us that have made a covenant with God by sacrifice are going to be gathered to Him. That's a mystery. What should we do with it? What should we do with any mystery of God that we've been given through the Scriptures? Should we sit on our rear ends and just wait? Oh, I don't... don't, Be like Hezekiah. Well, okay, fine. Antichrist will come. I don't care. It ain't going to happen in my days. No. The New Testament tells us exactly what we should do with these mysteries. I talked about this before when we talked about the mystery of God there in Revelation. What should we do with the knowledge of this mystery enfolded in the Old Testament and unfolded in the New? What should we do with it? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 that we're stewards of it, first of all. We are stewards of the mystery of God. And what is a steward? A steward is one who is Faithful in his duties to his master. So if we are stewards of this mystery that Christ is going to come for his church, then we need to be those that faithfully carry out our duties. That is the best preparation. What are our duties? To carry out the Great Commission. To assemble ourselves together. To praise God. To pray and cry out for God's vengeance on the wicked. Those are our duties. To be a witness to support missions, to be willing to go. That's the best way we prepare for this day of deliverance is we're stewards of that mystery. We do our duty faithfully. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20 says that we are ambassadors of God's mystery, the great mystery of the church, the bringing of Jew and Gentile together. An element of that mystery is its rapture. And we are ambassadors of it. What does an ambassador do? He declares the will of his Lord. He declares it. Are we teaching this? 
Are we telling believers to be ready or are we avoiding it because, oh, there's people that believe different things. Well, I don't want to take a position because there's pre-trib and post-trib and mid-trib and I don't want to offend anybody. No, that's not what an ambassador does. An ambassador teaches and preaches God's word and tells people to be ready. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church and everything associated with it. We shouldn't avoid these things because people disagree. They disagree because they don't interpret Scripture with Scripture and they interpret Scripture based on what a man says. Pick up a Bible and put all your commentaries away and forget about what another man says. Put up out your Bible and read your Bible and you cannot come to another conclusion in terms of God's protocol for His church. You can't do it. Colossians 4, 3, and 4. What are we to do with the mystery of God? We are to speak it and make it manifest. That means we're not just to declare it, we're to show it. How do we show it? We open up the scriptures and show somebody. When somebody hears something that they're questioning and they're working through, and they don't believe it because they've been told something else, it's not one thing to just say, well, I believe in this. I want to show them. Just like a, like, like a, a believer in Israel told me, a Jewish believer said, there's two things you need to remember and you need to listen clearly when it comes to witnessing to my fellow countrymen. Number one, don't beat around the bush. You need to say it plainly. Secondly, you can't just say it. You've got to show them. You've got to open up the scriptures and show them what, what these things are. That's what we're to do. Speak and make manifest the mystery. And then 1 Timothy 3.9 says we are to hold the mystery of God with a clean conscience. It's the same verb in Greek that it means to have and to hold. Think about the commitment a husband makes to his wife on the marriage day. To have her, not just to have her, but to hold her. We are to do that with God's revelation, with his mystery concerning the church what it is, its duties in the world, and what's in store for it. We are to have it, and we are to hold it. That means we are to live as if we really believe it. If we really believe there's a rapture coming of the church, and that rapture removes a restraint of evil, and that what follows is terrible judgment when God punishes the people of this earth, if we really have that and hold that, then we are going to be preaching the gospel. We are going to be warning people about the wrath to come. We are not going to be sitting on our hands in our creature comforts. We're sure not going to be closing doors because of a a virus with a 99% survival rate. It was incredibly, it was almost hilarious in Nashville. You had people wearing masks. You had signs, metal signs, like made by the city, like, like a parking sign that said, if you cannot social distance, you must wear a mask. This is the law. Exact words. All up and down the street. So in other words, if I couldn't socially distance, which I couldn't do, surrounded by a bunch of preachers with all people moving down, supposedly I was to be wearing a mask. Well, you know, usually those signs have a little code number below them in a city. They let you know exactly what the law is. Wasn't no code number there. It wasn't a code number. Lies. Police officers, many of them overweight, many of them people who couldn't chase you down if they wanted to, most of them ladies, are going around with boxes of masks, an open box of masks that their hands have been all over, 
and they're going around trying to give you a mask telling you you have to wear one. Police officer came up, said, here, you need a mask. I said, no, thank you. Not a chance. Not a chance, officer. Turned around and walked off. So I guess it's not the law. I stood up to them. They walked away. I never wore a mask. I'm not going to put something on my face that, out in the open that they've been handling. But anyway, what was funny is you saw people lined up outside of bars in the cold, wet, lined up with a diaper on their face. And there were girls with their face covered telling us that we were killing people by not wearing masks. And yet they were dressed with short skirts, an open top, no jacket, nothing warm on their head, in 40-degree weather that's wet. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't care. Are you that foolish that you think you're actually protecting your health right now? I mean, that's where we are as a nation. That's where we are. But we can't just be content with that and sit back and do nothing. We have to have and to hold this truth and to have and to hold it as to live as if we believe it. If we believe God's going to take care of us and that precious in the sight of the Lord and the death of His saints and that God will deliver us, then we need to live like we believe it, even if it means our death because death is deliverance. I told my brother who lost his wife a couple weeks ago last night, I said, you know what? I know it's difficult to you, but praise God, she no longer has to deal with this garbage going on all around us. And I cited Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. When the righteous are taken away, it's, it's important for us to remember that God delivers his people from evil days to come. Good stewards, ambassadors, make it manifest, show it, and have it, hold it, live it. And really, at the end of the day, is, not, is that not the example of the shepherds in Luke 2? Was not that what they did with that great mystery that they were able to see with their eyes? The coming of Messiah, the mystery of the Old Testament. They were told by the angels they went and saw it. What did they do? They were good stewards about it. They went back to their fields, carried out their duties. They were ambassadors. They declared it all over town. They showed it, and they lived as if they believed it. That ought to be us. And when that happens, was not the city of Jerusalem blessed and exalted because of that? Shall not in some way, whether we see it or not, our nation be blessed and exalted if we'll live as if we believe these things and declare it? There were those out there the other day that were blessed. There was a guy who wanted to fight me. I dared him to put a hand on me. See, I don't put up with that. I like to call him as I see him. Maybe I shouldn't be so blunt. But he wanted to fight me and went inside the bar and then came out a few minutes later and apologized. And we ended up having a nice conversation. He was from California, not far from where Jamie and I used to live. And he took a gospel tract. He went away blessed, shook my hand before he left. The city was exalted. A man was blessed. So I hope that encourages you today. Let's just, let me cover Isaiah 18 next week. I'd like for you to pray about that this week. Very interesting chapter. And I'll probably better be able to talk about it after this week. You know, these are historic days here in America. We don't know what's going to happen. We know what's going to ultimately happen. But we can rejoice that if God is judging this nation, there will be those who learn righteousness.
So again, we'd appreciate your prayers. Let's, uh, I'll just close us in prayer and we'll turn it over to the elders. Lord, thank you for this uh, moment, these moments we've had to preach your word. Um, Lord, I thank you for uh, the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be good stewards and ambassadors of the mystery of your church. Not only the salvation that comes by sacrifice into the body of Christ because of what Jesus has done, but also your plans and purpose for the church, both now and in the future. Lord, help us to learn it and know it and show others. Lord, to have it, to hold it, and live as if we believe it. Whether it be in the midst of COVID or amidst of coming judgment or even the fall of this nation, that may very well happen. So we trust these things to you. We cry out, Lord, Maranatha, that you would come for us even today, but not, Lord, before every soul in this room is ready to meet you. So, Lord, I pray that those who are lost here today, even their ch the children, that you would give them understanding that they would make a covenant with you by sacrifice, by believing upon your sacrifice, so that when you do come, maybe we'll be meeting here, and maybe this whole house, this whole property will be empty when that happens. So be it. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.